Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Chaser Report is recorded on Gadigal land. Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report. I'm Charles Firth and with me today is a very special guest, Max Chandler-Mather, who is the uh, Greens spokesman on housing and uh, one of the three, I think, is it um, Greens who got elected in Queensland uh, federally at the last election. Hello, Max. Hey, Charles. Thanks for having me. We're recording this on Thursday morning, and Peter Dutton last night came out and um, opposed the voice to uh, Parliament uh, for Indigenous people. Uh, What's going on? You're a Queenslander. He's a Queenslander. I'm sort of (laughs) holding you personally responsible for for him existing. Uh, No, fair enough. Uh, It is... Yeah, it's uh, so I'm sort of surprised, to be honest. I mean, I'm not surprised in a way that uh, Peter Dutton's behaving in the way he is, but it's sort of remarkable how irrelevant the Liberal Party are making themselves at the moment. And uh, mm. I sort of thought after the Aston by-election that they would realise that the Liberal Party is currently disintegrating as a political uh, party and, like, losing its reason to exist and sort of chasing... Uh, irrelevancy down this deep black hole and following the path of Tony Abbott. Uh, I I suppose I thought maybe there might be a few heads in the Liberal Party who would know that that's such a completely self-destructive thing to do. But, yeah, here we are. I mean, uh, Peter Dutton has decided to um, render the Liberal Party even more irrelevant uh, than it is at the moment. And it is sort of remarkable how they have basically nothing to offer anyone anymore. Mm. Um, but you like they, but, they, they yeah, but just to just to like in fairness to them, Max, they 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 mm. it's not that they oppose you know a recognition of indigenous people in the constitution, not that they oppose it's just it it doesn't it's just that it shouldn't have any impact on anything as long as it just doesn't do anything for anyone in any way. They're completely supportive of it. That's right. And it's funny how, like, their argument for a long time has been, well, uh, it's not, you know, we need to have practical outcomes on the ground for First Nations people. And now they've turned around, yeah, that's it, and said, well, we're concerned that actually the voice proposal is too consequential um, and it might actually have an impact, so now we have to oppose it. Um, (laughs) So it's all all of a sudden dawned on them that it might actually have some positive impact on people's lives. So that's what's flipped them into opposition. Do do you think um, he hates himself at some level? Do you think Peter Dutton, like part of the problem is he sort of, because one of the reasons he's, opposed it is because it's too it'll be too canberra like it'll it'll make the indigenous voice really a canberra bubble right Mm. he has worked in canberra for 22 years like (laughs) do you think maybe he just needs to sort of like just become a little bit more accepting of himself and go look (laughs) i I am from canberra you know it's fine i can identify like that it's all right if other people get to be part of Canberra as well. It, it doesn't just have to be for, for white men from Queensland. Like you know, you know what I mean. Like yeah, I mean he. Um, I can under having spent now six 
just over six months down in Canberra, I can understand the sense of um, self-loathing having to <laughs> be, be down yeah. there. Um, but it, it, um, he's clearly trying to pursue the strategy that Howard pursued to kill off the Republican referendum, which was frame a yes vote as this sort of support mm. for some sort of elitist yes. uh, project. Yes. And I think it, I mean, it certainly it will be incumbent upon all of us campaigning for a voice to make clear that actually this is about breaking the elite control that, um, politicians have over policy in particular for First Nations people like the whole point of this like he's attempting to reverse what the point of this is which is uh, to get First Nations people otherwise locked out of politics to have a voice mm. down in Canberra for the first time ever um, so I think you know it's um, like a lot of um, conservative attacks on these sort of um, positive progressive proposals they attempt to try and argue the opposite of what it actually is going to do um the irony being yeah. that what he wants is the status quo which is precisely Canberra getting to decide everything for first nations people <laughs> yeah. oh, it's pretty i mean i did like noel pearson's uh, comment this morning that because dutton's main problem with it is oh look it'll be full of this voice will be full of professors right like indigenous professors oh. and, and noel pearson just goes Hang on, so you you don't want Indigenous people to get an education? Is is that where we're at? Like that's, a, that's sort of centuries old. Well, no, no, exactly. And so. also, um, you know, again, uh, uh, the other point being that yes, of course, we bizarre that he would suggest that somehow First Nations people with an education somehow shouldn't be listened to. But also, mm. the whole point of again of the voice is that precisely for the first time, people who otherwise don't get a platform in the media, which is often First Nations people from remote communities or um, even uh, inner city areas that might not have mm. an education, like the whole point of the voice is also to give them a say. And right now, yes. often the media will only listen to people um, uh, with the university education, which is good. But this is about broadening that yes. out. And again, Dutton is sort of he's. He's attempting to argue the opposite of what actually is the case. Because um, yes. if, he, if he succeeds in blocking this, not only will it set reconciliation back decades, but uh, it will also lead precisely to the outcome he's concerned about, which is the same voices being heard in the media up until this point. But, um, but, but yeah. Max, it will lead to... We'll be controlled by people in the remote communities bubble, like all the elites in the remote communities bubble. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's just <laughs> it's remarkable, isn't it? Like, and yeah. for a guy who, for a guy as you said, who's been a politician for what over like two decades now, mm. who certainly the one thing about Dutton he can't complain about. It's not exactly he doesn't get a voice. Um, mm. it's, I, I think his concern, maybe his biggest concern, is he'll become more politically irrelevant. Um, um, yeah, well, you know, he's concerned but, about his voice. Yeah, mind you, it would be very hard for him to become even more irre- irrelevant. But uh, yeah, just watch him. You might as well give it a shot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, now this is not why we got you on the podcast. The reason why we got you on the podcast is because you've been droning on uh, about housing for the last six months and wanting to actually solve the housing crisis. And and look. <laughs> You know, like I'll, I'll put my cards on the table here. Um, you know, I have no interest in any, you know, of your radical <laughs> left-wing policies getting up because, you know, there's a lot of... I mean, who will lord the lands if uh, if there are no landlords? But, 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 but before we sort of get into sort of the Greens, you know, quote-unquote solutions to housing... Can we just get a sense of where you come from, Max? Because you, you, like, you've got quite an interesting story. Like, 
you're not like to me greens are cardig like black skivvy wearing latte sipping Victorians who complain about how great Sydney is all the time. What 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 are the, what's three Queensland green? What how did you do it? Like what's going on up there? Yeah, it's it as a project. I mean, it start like the the group of people that got involved. I I I've often described as a bunch of uh, the people that are organising it the most. A bunch of young renters, really, in Queensland who up until that point felt a bit like political refugees and that the political system just didn't represent them at all. And we kicked it off when I managed um, uh, Jono's council campaign up in the Gabba Wards for Nangathan. And uh, we won out of nowhere in 2016. And we happened upon this strategy that is very radical, which is mm. um, organising a lot of people to go and knock on people's doors and ask what their issues are and then uh, talk about policies that might improve their lives uh, and mm. do that at yeah, scale, um, which, no. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which we were told would never work, um, no. you know, uh, yeah. but it turns out that it does. Yeah. Did, you, did you focus group that strategy before you went and did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. We, um, yeah, we paid a, um, a corporate firm um, millions of dollars to say, what, what do you think is going to happen if we just go and talk to people and listen to them and, and, do, and just do that for like mm. talk to like say 30,000 people in a single election, what do you reckon will happen? And they said, well, mm. yeah, we, you'd be better off giving all the money to us actually and running a few ads. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's evolved over time. And by the time the Griffith campaign rolled around, um, we had the capacity to train, which ended up training over a thousand volunteers uh, in essentially, and I've talked about this before, having what are functionally often uh, very long and complex conversations that sometimes ended up people acting as basically social workers. You know, like you would knock on someone's door in public housing mm. and they'd start talking about the fact they hadn't had access to healthcare or they were on a public dental wait list for 24 months. And our job was, A, to listen to that and hear them out, but also make it the political case that the reason they were in that situation was because of the power big corporations and billionaires wielded over our political system and offer them some hope that actually here, here's a political movement that has a solution to that, which is breaking that power, making them pay their fair share in tax and funding things like dental into Medicare or building public housing or, uh, you know, making fossil fuel corporations pay their fair share in tax. And uh, it was remarkable. One thing we learned very quickly in Queensland was this view that Queensland somehow is this conservative state that uh, everyone, yes. yeah, you know, the, the mm. deep north uh, mm. is just completely wrong. Like, actually, the vast majority of people, when it comes down to it, are just fed up with politics and feel disconnected from it and don't feel like any party has any solutions for them and so largely switch off. And that's how you get the situation where lots of people just end up voting for, say, the LNP, not because they support the LNP's platform, but because they think, well, screw it, I don't really care about this one way or another because I don't think it's going to improve my life. And it's no coincidence that in Griffith, for instance, the Liberals' vote collapsed by 10%, 10%. And we were going to people's door and talking about probably the most progressive platform uh, the Greens have ever run in a federal election. And more Liberal mm. voters and Labor voters switched their votes to us because actually uh, this idea that Australia is a really conservative place is wrong. Actually, it's just that people have felt disillusioned and, and depressed about the state of politics and so... Mm don't have any, feel like they have anywhere to go and we gave them a place to go. So, so you offered them a whole lot of hope. I hope you've, you've completely crushed their hopes 
subsequent to the election? Like, have you just <laughs> have you just stopped returning their phone calls? Or yeah, that's it. Um, well, it, what, that was the other good thing about our movement was, and I think it's uh, quite proud of it is we're very honest about, which is a radical notion in politics, and um, about how how long this that this is a long project. You know, the line, the final pitch we had at the door during the election, we continue is like, look, um, positive. Substantial positive change is not going to happen overnight, but the reality is nothing changes if nothing changes. And our view is that if we start to elect representatives who actually believe and fight for what you believe in, then that's the first step to positive change. And our goal is to build the sort of political movement we're building here across the country. And that, is going, that isn't going to change in a few years, but it's going to take a lot of years, but it's got to start somewhere. And it's going to involve you as well. And uh, and that meant recruiting people at the door to come and join our campaign, get involved in our political project. Uh, and that builds a much more resilient political movement as well, like not a flash in the pan. This is one where we attempt to provide that sort of broader political education about how we build power in politics for ordinary people and the fact that it has to involve them, they have to get involved, but also it's going to take time which means that we're not going there and promising the world and saying if you get one Greens MP, then Utopia will arrive the next day. Mm. Uh, it's actually if you get one Greens MP, this is one another brick in the wall yes. to build a political project that changes politics. So, Because it does feel slightly different to the Greens of 10 or 15 years ago. Like, you know, like back then... The Labor Party would approve 116 gas mines, mm. say for example, yeah. just you know hypothetically, <laughs> and and then it it felt like like might not be true, but it felt like at the time the Greens would say no, we we want zero gas mines, mm. and then you'd end up with 116 gas mines, and now <laughs> the difference this time around is like. The, the Labor Party wants 160. Well, they probably want a minimum of 116 gas. Let's, <laughs> That's right. Let's be honest here. Yeah. <laughs> and and the Greens want zero. And then we end up with about half that. We end up with about you know, which is sort of like I mean, there is an argument to say you just you're just stringing out our slow death. Like there is an <laughs> argument to say we'll just burn a bit more slowly in a fiery pit of hell. But at the same time, you, you also go, oh, actually, there's a sort of there might actually be a bit more effectiveness in sort of like stopping half of them now because that's better than nothing at all. Like there, there is like, and that that feels like a shift. I don't know whether you sort of uh, you were probably about twelve back in in twenty oh nine or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. I was definitely still in high school. <laughs> probably not good for yeah. um, listeners to hear but, that, depending on how old they are. But, um, but do you think that yeah, expediency, um, I mean, uh, here's the take that you use the word, that willingness to mm. sort of actually place yourself in and make a few grubby decisions, mm. you know, um, is actually is is part of the political confidence that you get from, from having a movement behind you? Yeah, I, I think it also comes from a, like, a, a mature... Uh, reading of where our political how much political power we have at the moment as well like we're not mm. we approach this not with you know not with rose-colored glasses but hopefully with quite a dispassionate view of where the balance of forces are in australian politics at the moment by that i mean on the one side you have these fossil fuel corporations who wield an enormous amount of power and uh it was clear to us um negotiating with labor that companies like woodside uh and santos and BHP, et cetera, 
exerted an enormous amount of influence, both the, both the major parties, but let's not forget that they ended up donating more to the Labor Party this federal election than the Liberals. And mm. we recognise that uh, for us to ultimately win that, I suppose, in a way, fight over the, over the direction of Australian politics and the economy and climate change, then we need to build a movement that's capable of challenging that power. And we're not fully there yet. Like the reality mm. is that um, uh, for us to, in that safeguard negotiation, the harsh reality was that there weren't million, marches of a million people on the ground. We didn't have the mm. capacity to run a sort of a Griffith-style knock on 90,000 doors in every key electorate in the, in the country. And so um, part of this compromise that was reached with Labor was also about a compromise between two political projects um, and a realistic summation of how much power we had at that point. And, mm. and I think that comes from, a, like, a lot of people, um, I think, getting involved in the Greens at the moment, like, we want to win. And, and, winning, mm. and winning doesn't mean winning seats. Winning means not getting evicted because you can't afford the rent. Like, winning means mm. not burning in a fiery pit of hell. And when you start to take that seriously, you start to take seriously. What I, love you take. I love how you've set, you've set the bar pretty low for success, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we I, I guarantee, we promise that you won't die in a fight. Well, that's where Australian politics is at the moment, Charles, and yeah. hopefully we, we pick it up off that um, basic floor. Yeah. And that means that you have a political movement that's that says, well, we've we've reached this cons- um, this uh, compromise with Labor, say, on the safeguard mechanism, where, as you said, we've stopped stopped ha- hopefully half of those 116 coal and gas mines. And now we pick ourselves up and we work out, well, how do we stop the other half? And to stop the other half does mean um, building a much bigger political movement and working out how to expand that capacity we've built in a few seats across the country. So that's what we're working on right now. Yeah. Well, actually, it's true because I was talking to a Labor person who said, well, if the Greens want to stop all of them, they they have to get a majority uh, of seats. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, that sounds like a, <laughs> maybe that's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so look, you mentioned housing, so I'm going to use that as the segue into what we're actually here to talk about, mm. which is, so I'll just put to you, like, so a majority... Or well, in fact, everyone who's involved in the chaser, or just sort of like peripherally involved in the chaser, who's under forty, which is quite mm. a lot of people, right, have been hit with massive rent increases in the last six months. Like not just like, you know, a hundred and thirty dollars a week, but like there was one. I mean, for the whole house was like four hundred and eighty. I mean, it was quite a large house. Four hundred and eighty dollars mm. increase. Like it just sort of. And we're actually running a competition on Reddit. If you go to our subreddit, which is Chaser, um, if you have a particularly big uh, rental increase, please uh, let us know because we're trying to find the person with the biggest, the person who's been most fucked in the last six months by the uh, housing growth. (laughs) No, exactly. Um, But what I want to, the first question I want to ask is, why do you think Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party are so unurgent about this? Like, it, like I don't know anyone who's not in genuine pain and actually has had to move or is considering move or even has to move in with their parents even though they're now in their 30s. Like, why 
is it not like the only thing that people are talking about? That is a great question and one that I thought about often. Uh, the the highest rent increase I'd heard, by the way, was two hundred dollars a week. So your was it four hundred? Yeah, four hundred and eighty. I'll I'll get the details. But that, yeah, that four hundred and eighty. That takes the cake, and I we get emails every week and calls every week. So that's blown all of those see, out of the water. See, but that's because we live in. It's because we live in Sydney. Like, you Queenslanders don't even know what rent is. <laughs> um, if only that were the case. Um, the, um, <laughs> the, look, it's a genuinely good question. I think, too, there's three things going on. One, uh, I think the political class on both sides, including the Labor Party, have are so disconnected from the ground at the moment, they completely misunderstand and have underestimated the scale of the housing crisis at the moment. And uh, they, as you've described, don't get actually that this crisis is not just affecting low-income residents. But when we go door knocking, we're, we're chatting to people like teachers, nurses, professionals who mm. they themselves are contemplating um, moving out because they can't afford the rent increase or their kids in particular. They're really worried about how their kids are going to afford a home. And so I think there's that disconnection going on. Secondly, I think uh, the political economy in Australia is such that um, for a long time housing has been dominated by uh, and politics has been dominated by homeowners uh, and uh, in particular dominated by property developers in the banks. And they have a direct financial interest in the housing system working the way it currently does. And if you mm. look at the people who dominate government and policy formation, uh, it is ex-bankers and property developers. Um, like the head of uh, Labor's new national... Uh, uh, supply and Affordability Council, this new expert body they want to set up. The head of that is the ex-CEO mm. of Mervac, like a property developer. <laughs> that is not true. It that is, is true. Not true. We, we actually have been trying to say to Labor that mm. you shouldn't point. So I think there's that as well. And I think finally, like, if you look at Parliament. So it's like, it's like ten, ten, Tanya Plibersek's the Minister Against the Environment. Yes. And the Housing Affordability Committee is... Is against housing affordability. Is that the? That's how we would describe idea, it. it? Um, like, <laughs> it's no surprise to me that that supply and affordability council would never think that um, rent controls or rent caps would be a good idea. Um, and I somehow I don't think it's out of the goodnesses of their heart. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Chaser Report. News a few days after it happens. I, I don't mean to... I mean, I, I think this doesn't explain it all, but it helps... Like Parliament is dominated by homeowners and pe- property yes. investors. Okay, so this is this is my theory, which is actually that they're just too busy managing all the rent increases <laughs> on their investment properties to have noticed that that's having effect. Like, like literally, because imagine having to count all that extra money that's coming in each week yeah. from all your rent increases. That would that, that would knock out your Sunday. That's and, true, and then you. You can't go and talk to people and, and see that they're thinking of becoming homeless and stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have been tempted to ask um, Anthony Albanese in Parliament um, how much he's put his rents up in his investment properties um, and whether or not a rent, a freezing <laughs> rent increases would affect him. But I thought that's not I a constructive... I dare you. Yeah. I dare you. I dare you. <laughs> not a constructive thing to ask. 
But I think the other thing going on as well is like obviously we have been pushing Labor to introduce a national freeze on rent increases for the next two years just because otherwise mm. we think the crisis is going to boil over into a national disaster if it hasn't already. And mm. I think the other thing that happens, and we've talked about this in Winning Griffin, is that the instinct of the Labor Party is to constrain what's considered possible in politics. If they admit, come out and admit that we need to have a proper debate about how we introduce rent controls and rent caps, that lets the genie out of the bottle for them. Like they have to, for instance, all of a sudden actually have to consider substantial real change to the way this housing system works in Australia. And mm. uh, that raises ex- people's expectations about what politics can achieve. But often we find that the role the Labor Party play in politics is to continually constrain and crush what people think is possible in politics. You know, they always say, oh, well, we'd love to do that, but we can't for this X, Y, and Z reason. Or Mm. actually, that's just not something that we can consider right now. And Mm. what we're attempting to do is make clear that countries around the world use rent caps and rent controls uh, very Mm. successfully. And if we don't Mm. do it, there's about to be a huge wave of human misery. And um, Mm. I think that right now, Labor are attempting to put the genie back in the model and I don't think they're going to be capable because they have misun- they've underestimated that when one third of the country can't guarantee that they'll st- stay in their bloody home for the next six months, then the one third of the country that rents, that that is a political volcano that eventually is going to explode one way yes. or another. And, and, and the problem is that, like, I think Australia is the only place in the world where property is just a complete commodity with no sort of idea that it should be treated as a sort of human <laughs> right and necessity, right? And and there's a few really crucial things that go into it because it's not just about rental caps and making sure that you can't just arbitrarily bump up the rates. It's also things like, like I mean, in Barcelona, they, about 10 years ago, they had this huge protest movement because what they tried to do just after the GFC was they tried to put down the minimum rental period that you could get for a residential property from five years to three years, right? And the entire, the whole city of Barcelona just basically took to the streets and went, this is absurd. You can't, you can't expect someone to rent a house and not think that they have the right to live in it for the next five years. Like, what, three years? That's not nearly enough. Like, you want to be able to put posters. This is your house. This is your home, right? And here in Australia, it's like, oh well, we'll give you six months, and then, but we can chuck you out if we decide that you know, like, you know, I don't know, we change our mind or the wind changes or something like that. And so there's there's a whole lot of fundamental things about tenants' rights that are so bad here that I have a little bit of a proposal for you, Max, which is this. Mm. I reckon. There's a sort of there is a national role because I know a lot of that stuff is state and that's why the Labor Party always says oh no well that's a state problem right mm. but there is a national role in housing which is all the fucking tax breaks that all these fucking fuckwits get right mm. they are all national decisions they are all federal tax breaks right so what if like it would be entirely possible for the government to turn around tomorrow and go, you know what? If you want your fucking negative gearing and your not enough, you know, your discount on capital gains tax and all the stuff that pumps up the price of property, then you actually have to adhere to a national set of standards, which includes things like 
for minimum five year leases for tenants in a one way thing. The tenant can leave whenever they want, but the ten but the tenant gets minimum five years in the thing. Mm. No ability to just arbitrarily chuck somebody out. Doesn't matter even if you sell the property, that tenant is still there because it's their fucking home. Mm. And you don't get anything. You don't get a, a single cent from us if you're not treating it like it's an actual basic human necessity, which is the reason, the justification for why you get all those tax breaks in the first place. Yeah, very interesting proposal. And the first thing to say is, you're right, Australia actually is relatively unique in how um, much housing is geared towards profit for banks and property investors and property developers. So get this, um, in Australia, 60% of the lending that banks do uh, is to property, housing, like 60%. Compared to that to the US, it's about 20 to 30%. Like the, there's banks are more, make more money out of housing in Australia than they do in the United States. Like it is insane. <laughs> um, and just on um, the role that the feds could play, like, yeah, we need to get rid of capital gains tax uh, concessions and negative gearing. Like it costs just over $20 billion a year that we could just be... Like, imagine if we just spend that money. We could be spending that on subs. We could be spending that on submarines to defend ourselves from China. Man. Or, exactly, or a giant golden statue of Joe Biden, you know? like, um, uh, <laughs> But, like, cut out the middleman. Like, yeah. maybe we really, you know, if you really want to worship the United States. Um, but yeah. um, Or on public housing, right? And, like, imagine if instead of providing uh, tax concessions to property investors, we were just spending that money on building public housing. Like, we would solve the housing crisis in five years, but on rents, right? Um, so the federal government last year said we were in the middle of an energy crisis. Like we're in a big trouble mm-hmm. here. Like the energy price is about to go through the roof, but usually this is a responsibility of the states. But mm-hmm. what they said is we're going to play a national leadership role. We're going to bring all the states together and we can say this is untenable. We need to agree to capping energy prices in some way. And our point is you can do the same for rents. Now, the federal mm. government um, post-World War II did play that role. They froze rents nationally. Uh, so by that, I mean freezing rent increases. And the federal government could tomorrow go to the states and say, let's all get together. We need, uh, we need national rent freezes uh, on rent freeze rent increases. And here is this, this is the set of standards, as you said, like no ground, ending no grounds evictions, letting people stay in their property, limiting rent increases. And in exchange, what we're going to do is distribute money to each of the states and set up this grant fund and say, if a state signs up to this deal, then we can distribute $2 billion to help um, implement the system, build more public housing, help fund your state. And they do that for health and education, uh, for energy, for industrial relations. And why is it, as you said, that mm. all of a sudden housing, apparently that's too hard? Yes. And I think that's but- partly because... That's partly because... They've decided that um, renters are going to put up with the fact that, unlike in Barcelona where they protested, renters are going to put up with the fact that they can be continue to be treated like second-class citizens. And the point we want to make and what we're trying to demonstrate to the government is that's Yeah, no because they're too big. As you say, it's a third of the population. I actually have another theory about why they don't want to do it, which is that mm. you know how Albo always goes on about, oh, my God, I grew up in government housing, right? Mm. He doesn't want anyone else to get that sob story. Because if you started increasing all the social housing, everyone else would be able to tell the story about, oh, my God, I grew up in government housing. He wouldn't have a unique story to tell. He needs something for the campaign trail, Max. That's true. Look, I hope that's not the case. But you do raise a good point, which is um, 
When Albanese was growing up in public housing, uh, the federal government spent billions of dollars every year building mm. public housing. Like if, mm. get this, if per population, the federal government and state governments were building the same number of public housing units as they, as they were in the 20th century, over the next five years, the government would build 150,000 public housing homes. Mm. Um, and it's shocking to me that all, he talks about how he got this opportunity growing up in public housing. And it does genuinely make me angry that he's turned around and said, oh, well, we know that um, there's a shortage of 640,000 public and affordable homes, mm. but we're not going to give those people the same opportunity that I got. And, mm. and how many future prime ministers, how many future doctors, how many future scientists or, or leaders in this country are we missing out on because they are being uh, abandoned to permanent housing poverty I, and insecurity? I really think that's a bad argument, Max. I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, the world could have more Anthony Albanese's than <laughs> public housing. I don't think that's going to really... <laughs> no one's going to go to the barricades for that. <laughs> That's, um, uh, that's a good, you have poked a substantial <laughs> hole in my Now, so look, this brings me to the final thing because we really should. Our episodes are supposed to be like 20 minutes. This has been like 40 minutes. We really have to go. But, okay. Max, I, I want to bring you to just a pitch for the Greens for you, which is mm. so. As, as we talked a bit about Barcelona, that whole movement, what's it, what was it called? Barcelona en commun or whatever. 15M. You know, Ada Calais. And 15M. Right. Movement, okay. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it's called. Anyway, they grew into a national. They actually ended up taking over the whole of Spain for a while, right? Mm. And, but, that, and it was a renter's stroke. Like, it was literally, it all grew out of frustration around housing right housing affordability right mm. and also climate change like that was the other thing that they were really worried about right the greens nowadays are basically the party of housing affordability renters rights all that sort of stuff very mainstream very big a third of the population totally sort of with you on that and climate change which happens to sort of uh, be like 85 percent of the australian population want more action on climate change than the Libs or Labor are giving, right? Okay, mm. so hear me out here. What th that movement did in Spain is that they said, well, actually, it was very shrewd of them. They went, well, we're actually centrists. We're the centrists. The socialists are off to one side. The nationalists are off to the other side. We, we sit in the middle of politics because we're just talking about renters' rights and climate change, which are the fucking absolute mainstream of Australian politics. I put to you, the Greens are not a fucking fringe-dwelling lefty party of socialists who just want to hug trees and want votes from koalas anymore. <laughs> They're actually the party of the centre, and it's actually the Labor Party and the Liberal Party who are at the fringes of Australian politics. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, um, and actually, they, I think it was Bernie Sanders at that one point was like, who are the, like... The radicals are the people that think um, we can go on just setting the world on fire uh, and not do anything about it. You know, the radicals are the ones who think that a majority of the population don't deserve housing security. Mm. Uh, and you're in many ways, like, and this speak, I, I actually think that pitch a lot of truth in that. And mm. our instinct is that the vast majority of this country believe in what the Greens stand for, but what they don't believe is that or have any hope or, or belief that it can actually change. And so disconnect. Mm. And to give you an example, like no one thought that we could win Griffith. 
But the moment we proved to people that we could knock on their door, that when the floods hit, we actually could get on the ground and help clean up and like we're hauling out muddy furniture whenever anyone needed help. All of a sudden, a whole new layer of people voted for us for the first time ever. Like the two-party preferred mm. in Griffiths for us was 60-40 in a seat that no one thought we could win. Um, mm. And mm. my firm belief is if we had the only thing holding us back from building a political movement that does represent what, as you said, is the majority, the centre of the Australian population, our only barrier is our capacity to organise in the ground in more seats like Griffith. And, that, and that's mm. um, why you get this sense that I sound slightly mad or overly energetic because... Uh, um, <laughs> Because it genuinely the, I think we're in a race against time here uh, and and it, what it's going to take actually is just being able to reach those people and say, you know what, you don't need to feel hopeless anymore and it is a political movement that represents what you believe in and it has mm. a chance of yeah. Yeah, and and do you think do you think the Greens have sort of allowed themselves to be boxed in by the sort of Murdoch industrial complex mm. into into believing themselves to be on the fringe as well? Like, do you think there's a sort of little bit of lack of self belief that that's boxed them in there for so long? It, yeah, I think that can happen. I think, and what we've found is the best antidote to that. As is going to sound. Um, provincial or small, but genuinely the best antidote to that is door knocking. Is door knocking. Like, I knew you were going to say door knocking. It, <laughs> yeah. No, no. Will, get this. We Everyone, will change oh, the Charles, world one door knocker at a time. Charles, I, you should come door knocking with me one <laughs> I time. I think Gandhi said that. Was yeah. it Gandhi or was yeah. it Mandela? Well, look, and they, he did pretty well. Um, the, um, <laughs> the, no, but genuinely you should come door knocking with one time because there's a phenomenon that happens every time someone door knocks for the first time and we found in Queensland. Mm is they start off really nervous and then they come back with like eyes glowing up and thinking, you know, and just wise and thinking, oh my God, Mm. we can win. Because everyone Mm. has the experience of knocking on a door and chatting to someone who's never voted for their Greens in their lives. Mm. And then all of a sudden being like, oh, you know what? I thought the Greens are a bunch of crazy kooks, but you guys are just talking Mm. about getting dental into Medicare and doing something on climate change. That sounds pretty normal. Uh, Mm. And, oh, maybe I could think about voting for you. And, um, it, 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 tra- it the confidence it builds in people and the sense of hope it gives when they realize, oh shit, uh, we could do this, uh, is just mm. so special. And it's certainly what gives me hope. Like when I come back from Canberra, I try to go door knocking once in that week afterwards because it grounds you again and makes it reminds you that what the Murdoch's papers say and what the media say, um, people think is not actually true. Uh, and you've to find out what people actually think, here's a radical notion, go and ask them what they think um, rather than rely <laughs> on what, um, what uh, you know, the panel on Insiders says everyone, think, everyone thinks. <sighs> okay. Well, um, yeah, lovely to have you on. I hope uh, we can bring you back in, in a few months and, and catch up and, and find – and I hope by then you will have solved climate change and housing affordability. Yeah, give us two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> great. That's how the news cycle works. Okay, well, uh, Max Chandler, mate, the, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. Our gear is from Road. We are part of the Iconoclast Network. Catch you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.